content of this podcast is provided as general informational purposes only. It is not intended for, nor should it be used to replace professional behavior intervention and advice. This is Sissy. And this is Susan, and we are Function Junction. Behavior matters. It does matter. It matters a lot. Um, it And it matters to learn new things about new children. And yes. we are... Uh, we're having a fun couple of days in Nashville, and we're lucky enough to be in a recording studio where Jen works. And Jen has agreed to talk to us about her son, who is on the spectrum. Is that right? That's correct. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for being here, and welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Sure. And um, so we've talked a little bit, but we're going to revisit a little bit of it. How old is your son? Silas is 10. 10 years old. How old was he when you knew something was up? I knew immediately. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the nurse brought him back from the, the nursery in the hospital and said, he can't be back there. He can't be back there. He has a temper. And I can remember... <laughs> They said he would. He needed to be with me as oh. opposed to he was too upset all the time. Oh. So I can remember thinking, how in the world would somebody say that a baby has a temper? Yeah. Right. And you move a couple of weeks down the road, and um, I go into our doctor because he's not sleeping. He seems fussy. He seems angry all the time. And the doctor said to me, well, babies have different personalities just like people, and your son has a temper. <gasps> And so I thought, this is crazy. Why is everybody telling me? Describing an infant as as having a a temper. temper. So I think at that point, something in my gut says something is is going on here. Something's a little different. I don't know if right then I really knew the extent of what it was. But now I can look back and go, oh, my gosh, of course, this child has even more sensory issues than your normal baby does. And then you're in the nursery with all the bright lights and the sounds and all of these things. So in so much of a change, I mean, we do say all the time babies, typically or however, are are going from this nice, warm, fluid-filled place (laughs) to bright, crazy, now my body moves off. And it is a huge adjustment. But yes, if on top of that, your sensory system is not regulating, it it can. Did he calm when when they gave him to you? Um, I think, uh, have you read the, uh, the or heard about the happiest baby on the block? I have not. Okay, so it it's a book that kind of even talks about the next like the next trimester and talking about how things like the shh sound shh shh because that's like hearing the mother's heartbeat mm-hmm. or swaddling mm-hmm. or being <clears throat> in a very dark room or like rocking. It hits like the five S's, which I can't think of what all of those are, but it is that's like okay. swaddling, shushing, swinging. I'm sure someone who's listening probably knows. Anyway, yeah, there's yeah. these That's five okay. yeah. S's, and it's all sensory related yeah. if you if you look at it. And sure. so I was doing everything that I could find as far as trying to um, comfort my son. And it's funny because with him, it took a little bit longer. I've since then been able to go to your more average or neurotypical baby and use those five S's uh-huh. and put him right to sleep. Oh, oh wow. he, was, he was a little bit more difficult okay. for for sure. But was he specific? Were there specific people in his life that you could, other people who could help calm him too? His father is um, 
a kind of a more calming presence in general. Ooh. So I'm I'm a little more animated, and his dad's a little more grounded. Okay, and I think he naturally just did pretty well with him. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I did well because other families will say sometimes there were no other babysitters. <laughs> there were no other um, as as young children. Um. So we he was still. Up until we were we weren't diagnosed till twenty three months, and he was regressive. He he got to a point where I think he slept a little bit at six months, oh, and when heart. he was starting to sleep, for then he he was more people were able to take care of him and watch him yeah. and stuff. He's never spent a whole lot of nights away from either his dad nor I. We're divorced now, Uh and if he's not with me, he's usually with his father still to this day. He's not been very successful at spending the night at even a grandmother's house on his own. So So you had said that his kind was regressive. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that might be a term that's new for some of our listeners. Okay, so 25%, is it 25%, I think, of autism is regressive. The rest of it is usually right from the start. Mm -hmm. You are going to see things like not making eye contact Mm -hmm. on time, Mm -hmm. not smiling, not you're going to have a lot of those milestones you're not going to reach. 25% of cases, they're going to reach Mm -hmm. those milestones Mm -hmm. and then lose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he did. He was already, he had some language. He was fairly social. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, I believe it was about 13 or 14 months when the regression started. Gotcha. And it, it, it regressed different pieces at a time Mm -hmm. and in such a way that even at 15 months, we had um, TEIS, which is um, Tennessee Early Intervention Services. So I'm sure you guys have something similar where you're at. Mm -hmm. Um, We had, because I, you know, my pediatrician was amazing. I, we took him in, we said, something's going on. He's, he stopped talking. He's not saying mama or dada or ball or dog anymore. He's just saying hi. And I know, you know, we were, we're a little concerned about it, and the pediatrician saw him and said, well, I don't see anything with him that would indicate something like autism. However, he said regression's never something to be ignored. So they went Good ahead and him. put me in with TEIS. Now, TEIS came. They did all of their tests. Evaluations, And yeah. everything fell within pretty much a normal range, even mm, though— wow. There had been regression because he was still operating at what a normal 15-month-old would. They really couldn't do anything. And it's really over the next, I guess, eight months, it was constantly waiting until something else put us into the next category before he finally got diagnosed at 23 months. And that's frustrating when you know. It's extremely frustrating, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially when you are... Going into, like, Vanderbilt's speech uh, right. and same type of thing. They're doing all the tests on him, and they're going, well, yes, he's got limited language. We're at this point. Uh, they were able to start saying he does have a deficit of 40% at this point, and then it's, but he still has receptive speech. And then it, it wasn't until we got to the point where we could be like, okay, you have a 60% deficit and receptive and a 90% yeah. oh, deficit goodness. and yeah. expressive. It's not until you get to that point where they can finally say, okay, we're going to get well, even even took longer for a diagnosis, but just to get services through like TEIS. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, we ended up getting our diagnosis. Ironically, I had a friend that was a BCBA. 
And oh. um, I had her come off the record to my house and just observe him because they were saying there was— they weren't giving any kind of diagnosis at this point. Oh, my gosh. And um, she watched him um, for a bit, and she said, okay, I mean, I'm I'm not a psychologist, but right. my, my unofficial opinion is that he is on the spectrum. Yeah. She said, and, you know, you need to get a diagnosis. And so the wait list at Vanderbilt at that time was about six months, and mm. he, he was um, 21, 22 months point at, at this point. TEIS only goes up to age three. Right. Right. So, now right? so you're looking ticking. at yes. yeah, the, the clock is ticking on being able to get those services. So right. there was another therapist in town that did the, did the ADOS test. And she oh, was okay. just, uh, you know, kind of like her an own independent therapist wasn't with Vanderbilt, wasn't anywhere else. We got into her and we got his diagnosis at 23 months moderate moderate severe was she a psychologist yes she was, was doing with, that? Okay. But, uh, but doctorate of, Do- yeah, yeah, yeah. P- she yeah. had her phd so. yeah okay good so you know 13 months is is fairly early to the, for the regression to begin at least to my understanding I think so. The way I'll say that is that's when I first noticed something. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. 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 We, he still was making eye contact gotcha. at that point. He was yeah. still, still. in fact, you know, he was, and, and here's the other side of this. When we went to the pediatrician, he was climbing all over him. He's cuddling all over him. Oh, yeah, things. that's a okay. Big- Silas still does. And that's something I think that we are starting to understand. Even our pediatricians are starting to understand more because you've got your sensory seekers. Yes, just that's like you've exactly got your right. sensory avert. So Silas is a seeker and yes. that's he's never stopped cuddling and hugging with yes. us, which I'm very thankful for that. Sure. But our pediatrician seeing this child that's yeah. loving on us and was like, This is not you know, this is not autism. Yeah. Yeah. And and what you recognize as regression looked within normal limits Absolutely. for other people, which right. is so frustrating. Well, could, could you just believe me when yeah. I tell yeah. you I'm his mother. he had these yeah. skills and he's losing these skills and I need intervention? Well, it, yeah. he was our second pediatrician, actually, because our first one, I had tried to say something was um, off. I was concerned he was ha- potentially having seizures uh-huh. or something because because he couldn't sleep because his startle yeah, yeah, reflex maybe. was so high and um the that pediatrician encouraged me to go seek help because oh. he thought it so was So refrigerator mother re reemerged <laughs> after all these years. <laughs> oh, that's um, crazy to me. So he was thinking I was having issues with um postpartum depression or yeah. um postpartum OCD and and things like that. So, so that- it took at that point, I, I moved pediatricians just because I wanted to be somewhere where I felt comfortable. And Absolutely. this is, so I love our, still the same pediatrician that was Good. with us at, diagno, you know, through yeah. diagnosis, but that was our second pediatrician. So, and if you're listening and you're questioning the term refrigerator mom, there was a gentleman by the name of Bruno Bettelheim who in the late 60s or 70s, I think 60s, yeah. um, coined the term refrigerator mom because he thought that it was the mom's fault. And, yeah. you know, he would say, you know, these parents are, you know, I don't know, accountants or cold, whatever, cold not, and unloving. Right. And it, it, that's been so... Just, yeah, I, he probably would have gotten a whole different response if he had said that to me than he even got. But mostly he was saying I was paranoid and that I, gotcha. I was looking okay. more into something that wasn't there. And okay. and honestly, a lot of people 
said that to me in the beginning. Which too. you still well, say, I'm sorry, but most babies do sleep a big portion right. of 24 hours. Right. And if he's not sleeping, that's not. That's my, yeah. my child. Right. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you is I've had a parent, because you said you knew, you know, pretty, pretty soon, immediate, you know, pretty immediately after he was born. And I had another parent who has a, I guess he's probably in his 30s now. And she said that too. And, she, and I said, how did you know? You know, and she said, it was like when I lifted him, he didn't lean into me. It was like hearing a sack of potatoes, you know. Right. But with with Silas, it sounds it like, like that. yeah, because he's so sensory seeking, he was probably no, cuddling and he reaching was, into you. It, yeah. it was like it was almost. It's almost like he has. Um, and this is not scientific at all, so I'll apologize. But Silas almost has more light than the average individual. So there was almost more. It was like I get exuding it. more, and I felt the more. I and know. so that's what it was for me. I felt like there was it was like he was bursting with, with light. With in, energy light, yeah. yeah. I yeah. love that. Yeah. I wish we, you know, we didn't get a chance to really talk to him today, but he is a beautiful beautiful yeah. yes. young man. Yeah, he is. Beautiful. <laughs> that's really cool and I love the way you described that because I think you know, Sissy, we run into kids often that are like that, that you're just like Wow, there's something something really special, you know, about this child. But I also think when you talk about he was crawling all over the pediatrician and not, you know, he was a sensory seeker instead Mm -hmm. of a sensory avoider, and the differences that you're talking about, it's really important that people understand autism is not a cookie-cutter disability. Some kids do want to be touched, you know, and I think a lot of people will say, like your pediatrician, well, he can't have autism. He's too social. Right. And recognizing the difference between social and and sensory seeking. Well, that too. You know? I think at that point, he was still pretty social, actually. Yeah. He, um, over the next six months is when you really saw him withdraw from from everyone and everything. He started pacing Mm -hmm. a lot. He started creating art, too, which was really interesting. Um, But if you had asked most people initially if that's what you thought about them, I don't think very many people would have said this looks like autism. Yeah. Just, okay. yeah. yeah, not from what the average person knows about it. Right. Um, would I think that now, after my experience, absolutely. Like, and now sure. understanding sensory processing disorder mm-hmm. and understanding how those profiles can be on both sides of absolutely. it. Absolutely, that he has some areas that he's averted to, and then some that he seeks. Mm-hmm. Um, he cannot sleep unless there is something on the TV, and we have lights going. Is that uh, right? Absolutely, and and we've been with. What I believe is one of the most, you know, what the sleep expert okay. um, through Vanderbilt. Okay, um, she's over there, and we still had to find our own. And we'd been with her for years, but we still had to find our own way. Yeah. And yeah. he needs certain amounts of stimulation to calm himself enough to sleep. Yeah. So yeah. even at night, he's going to wake up if the TV goes off and is not playing classical music, or if you know, like yeah. you just have to learn these things. And yeah. it's it is just. It's like you said, it's not a cookie cutter and they're all an individual with individual needs. And you talked about seeking sensory. What does he avoid, if anything? I think uh, so. I mean, you saw the headphones Mm -hmm. earlier and I think that's a big one. And it's mostly because it's an it, there's going to be unfamiliar sounds exactly. or too many sounds mm-hmm. coming Unpredictable. in he that he can't yeah. filter through because if it's something he's comfortable with he doesn't have yeah. them on or even a voice if it's just like me in the house he doesn't need them yeah. but if a new person yeah 
or two come into the environment, he's going to have his headphones on. And if you're still not low enough, he's going to start verbally stimming loud enough to where he Doesn't, can mm-hmm. dr- yeah. drown it out. He's masking yeah. those noises Absolutely. and yeah. mm-hmm. regulating himself. You know, it's all about being able he to regulate. He was so cute. He walked up to the door, and it's a glass door, and he kind of looked in like, <laughs> where are all these people, you know? <laughs> and it was he, us, but then it was also a couple of folks who work here. Yeah. You know? It and was so, a lot. He, he, he was say, ready to go back out pretty Yeah, quickly. I heard you say, yeah. it's a lot of people here, bud, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Does he have um, verbal skills? He he has some. Okay. Yeah, he does. He's still considered nonverbal, which I don't really like the term right, nonverbal. Right. I don't even like the term minimally verbal. Uh-huh. I think um, I d- different communicative. Like he has his own his yes. own, own method of communication. Yeah. Um, he does write. Oh, and he types, fantastic. and he's able to read um, quite a bit as well. And he has found ways of communicating a lot of what goes on in his head through being able to write things down. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and we have found, in general, giving him um, written examples and uh, written word works much better than anything auditory oh, course, that we yeah. tell him as yeah. far as it being yep. consistent. Just write so, it down. It makes mm-hmm. it so much. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how does he get his needs and wants met by writing um, He He's able to get most of his needs met still through okay. um, speaking. Speech. Yeah, very simple phrases, mm-hmm. but more complicated things or if we can't understand mm-hmm. what he's verbalizing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he'll write it down for us. That's and a lot amazing. of times it's going to be a lot clearer when he writes it down. That's yeah. so amazing, Jen. Oh, he's a 10-year-old, so mm-hmm. what grade is he in? He's He'll be going into fifth. Going into fifth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do they acknowledge and, and honor that type of communication Absolutely. We have to. We really had to work. I mean, and get the IEP to a point where it— it's set up so anyone can understand that and how they need to apply We that. say that all the time. The important part is you can write a million things down, but if you if someone else can just pick it up and read it, it and know what to do, yeah. there are going to be problems. And it still takes a while for that stuff to get implemented. Usually if they call me because there's oh, we had an episode at school today, and they said, well, go ahead and be up front right now. We didn't handle it the way that we should have you and know we, did, we didn't we didn't write da- there was a uh, unexpected transition we didn't write it down when it happened he he went and when he started to escalate we didn't write it down you know so that's on them. so right and they admit that yeah. um but it it's we had to learn that through trial and error sure. too what a huge difference it makes for him which just shows you know when we're able to take the extra step to learn how the child may communicate you might be surprised at how far you're able to to go with assuming competence thank you and not got not, um, not yeah you preaching to the choir I girl yeah. um that was golden. That if you want to rewind cool. and listen again, I think I think they say it's presume presume competence, right? Is that what how you're supposed to phrase it as? Oh, it's presume, presume or assume. Yeah, but either I think, way, yeah. I think giving, and I always say this to um, other other parents too that might be coming up behind me that they're like, well, my child can't read yes. or that's not happening, and I said, but but let's just go ahead and do it anyway. Yep. Because you yep. really don't know just because your child is not showing you mm-hmm. at this point that they can read or comprehend does not mean that they're not. And I fell into that kind of 
in a lucky way because something instinctively told me when he was a baby to put captions on the TV. I, I was going to say, oh, turn the captions goodness. on the TV. And so he yep. had had captions on the TV at, a, at the age of six months. Wow. And I really believe that influenced him being able. Because then by the age, even before we got an autism diagnosis, he was spelling things yeah. out. And I thought, well, I think this is somewhat advanced. This mm-hmm. is interesting. Yes. Silas also had pretty advanced um, motor skills as a baby. Uh-huh. And so when they were doing his assessments, his motor skills were off the charts. He was already writing and spelling, so that was off the charts. But then the other things were so unbalanced. Yes. And now I understand. Again, they don't tell you that when they're talking about the diagnosis for autism. Right. Now you understand that this balance, this much of a difference in your skill set, that's yeah. a sign right yeah. there. An even profile. An even cognitive profile. You know, and I love what you said about, well, my kid can't read. And there's two thoughts. One is, like what you said, well, let's just try anyway. Yeah. You know, let's just expose him to it anyway. And the other piece is, well, no, because he hasn't been taught to That's read. True. You know, That's true. like Silas learned to read because you combined the the closed caption with the voices. You know, so he was able to put things together. But you know, if, when people say he can't do that, I'm like, because he hasn't been taught. Let's teach him. Well, yeah. I th- I think it's he can't haven't been taught. And then the other side of that is. You don't really you don't know, know, though. You don't know. Because you don't know what they're picking That's up. That's right. That's right. Because so they, show- they're, they're, they're the ones that are in this world where everybody's mm-hmm. speaking the different language. Exactly. They're in the world that's not built for them, not us. Exactly. They're the ones with the true survival skills. You know, yep. They're yes. the ones that are are adapting. So you just really have no idea. Yeah. Because just because they're not able right. to communicate right. it in the way that we're able to understand right. at this point. Exactly. Yeah, and I will say, you know, I have been with three-year-olds, and I'm like, I'll put a word in front of them. I'll put red and blue, and I'll say, touch red. And they, I mean, yeah, they are clearly reading. It's like called... Um, hyperlexia, right? Yeah, uh, it's yes. The opposite of dyslexia. Mm-hmm. You've learned to read without having been taught, like yeah, Silas absolutely. was. Sissy, I am so thrilled that you were able to arrange the interview with Jen. That was so fun talking with her about him and what a cool kid he is. Yeah, yeah. She is a really neat lady. I mean, I enjoyed so very much getting to spend time with her and getting to see Silas. He is adorable and uh just you know seems like such a great kid i friended her on facebook you know we saw her the next night and i said hey i'm gonna friend you on facebook will you accept it and she was like of course and i've kind of been off social media for lent but every once in a while i'll check you know for the podcast and i see her um videos of him doing all kinds of sensory stuff at like sensory gyms and stuff and he just looks so happy but anyway Mm -hmm. You know, in part one of the interview, she talked about how Silas really likes to see, he seeks out sensory input, you know, with the pediatrician and everything. And she talked about how some people with autism repel sensory input. And you and I have two friends, Cindy Castile and Laura Northcutt. And Cindy is a behavior analyst and Laura is an OT, occupational therapist. And they've taught us that if you're in doubt, try heavy work with kids, whether they seek or repel sensory input. Heavy work has another name, A, vestibular, B, sensory diet, C, proprioceptive, D, none of the above. And before we go into the answer, let me just kind of say this, 
may not be a, a question on the ABA test, but it certainly is something I think our listeners would like to have clarification on because we hear these terms a lot. And so what do you think the answer is? Well, heavy work might be part of a sensory diet, but a sensory diet might have a lot of other things in it. Mm -hmm. mm, it's not vestibular. No. So definitely I would be going with proprioceptive Yeah, and they, um, they, as the answer. And, and I would say, you know, when Laura and Cindy have talked to us about that, you know, we're always interested in helping kids regulate sure. and some things will ramp kids up and some things will calm kids down and every person is different. You know, yeah. what calms me might ramp somebody else up. I know, right? We know, you know, our own pieces, but yeah, those proprioceptive activities, and we frequently think of those as heavy work activities will be helpful to almost everyone. Sure. Um, I definitely would say if you're using sensory activities with your own child or uh, children that you're working with in a school system or clinic system, track, <laughs> track yeah. how the activities that you have been doing with them affect their ability to continue to work or to calm down for nap time or nighttime or whatever it is. Uh, but yeah, that's true. You and I worked with a young man who loved to spin and he could spin and spin and spin and spin and never get dizzy. And, you know, if I did that spinning, I could maybe do it for a half a minute and then I'd have to stop. So everybody's different. And some people seek, some people repel, and some people seek out different types of sensory and repel different types of sensory. And I think Jen kind of alluded to that, you know, so good question. Good answer. Everybody, I hope you enjoyed part one. We'll have part two up shortly. Thanks so much for listening. As always, please feel free to like, share, subscribe on social media or on the podcast app that you're using. Thanks again. Have a great weekend. See you soon. See you later, guys.